Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. I really kind of am fascinated about how it's been embraced by so many cultures around the world. I can't tell you how many countries I've been to where hip hop was seen as like this really big deal. So it's really interesting to see how other cultures have kind of like taken hip hop and embraced it into something of their own and turned it into something that is culturally relevant for them. But for me, it will always be something that kind of like started with my community and something that we can fully embrace and say that this is our history. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Ashley Renee. She is a professional video creator, keynote speaker, world traveler, climate activist, vegan lifestyle advocate, plant based nutrition specialist and the on-camera host of Smart Healthy Green Living. After spending years in the corporate world doing video production and editing work for major companies like the Weather Channel, Home Depot, and WebMD, she quit her job in 2017 to become a location-independent entrepreneur and started travel blogging to show different perspectives of the world through her own lens. Her blog, Hey, Ashley Renee shares tips on how to live a sustainably stylish and adventurously green life. She focuses on eco travel as well as how we can have healthier bodies and make plant based lifestyle changes, especially in communities of color, which are disproportionately impacted by climate change and health problems with mixed parents from Jamaica and India. Ashley grew up primarily in the U.S. and is currently based in Atlanta, Georgia with her husband, Carl. And at the time of this recording, she is six months pregnant. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you here. This is going to be such an awesome conversation. As I mentioned, you are currently doing this from Atlanta. I am a little bit north of you in Washington, D.C., so we're actually in the same country, although not in the same place, unfortunately. But I would love to 
start with your background and just a little bit about where you grew up. And I'm really curious too, as you grew up, how did you connect with both your Jamaican and your Indian cultural heritage? Oh, so interestingly enough, that's actually a good question. I didn't at all. (laughs) So that's the funny part about my heritage is I didn't actually connect with those parts of myself until I was an adult and I started traveling. So my mom, you know, she came here from India and the way she, you know, raised us and the way my dad raised us, we just did not really talk about you know, our culture very much. I was raised very much so as a black woman. And the only time I ever really kind of got in touch with like my Indian side was when I would take these road trips every summer to visit my cousins. And I just kind of saw them as my Indian cousins, you know, my family, but I didn't really have that cultural connection with them because it wasn't the culture that I was raised in. And so I think sometimes you can, you know, just being mixed in general can be a very complex situation because what I often see with mixed kids is you might identify with like one side of yourself a lot more than the other side. And so that's very much what happened with me. Even my mom, like growing up back when say polls or when people were requesting information about your, your background or your information, and they would say like, what's your race or ethnicity? We didn't have the checkbox of, you know, more than one race or multi-ethnic. That didn't exist back then. It was just like African-American, Caucasian or Asian. And so there wasn't a whole lot to choose from. So my mom would always just say, like, don't check the Asian box, check the African-American box. And so I was raised to identify as a black woman. And that's what I identified with. I lived in all black neighborhood, went to an all black school. I was raised on black culture. And so it wasn't until I was older and I started traveling and I started to appreciate being different and having like these different cultural sides to myself that I actually started to get into it. And I wanted to explore Jamaican culture and Indian culture because I think I was old enough to appreciate it at that point when I was actually kind of doing it on my own versus like my parents trying to teach me about it, which they just didn't for whatever reason. But I think it was a lot more special too being able to take that journey to explore those sides of myself on my own as an adult, because I did it because I wanted to, because I came to that conclusion that that was something that I wanted to do. Right. And did you have any of those cultural influences, though, like from your parents, either food or music or I mean, you mentioned I think your mom is from Kerala, right? So like, did she speak Malayalam or did she speak Hindi? Like, did they bring any of that into the house while you were growing up at all? Not at all. My mom was like the most anti-Indian Indian you could have ever met, which I mean, it's not a surprise because Back then, you know, when she married my dad, that was a really big deal because there are a lot of, you know, racial dynamics at play here. Like with Indian culture and black culture, it just was not acceptable at all back then for an Indian woman to marry a black man. And so part of me wonders if the turmoil that they had to experience, you know, in trying to display their love and get married and enjoy their marriage and kind of step into this new direction of being an interracial couple. I I almost wonder if it turned her off from Indian culture. And so she didn't really 
express like her Indian cultural side around my sister and I. So we didn't really grow up on it. It's almost like she kind of just kept that part of herself from us and just really wanted us to be raised as Americans. So she never spoke the language. The only time I really heard the language was when my grandparents came to live with us temporarily. We had our basement completely finished so that they could live with us for a while. And it didn't last for very long because they actually eventually got tired of being in America because it can be very hard, you know, like when you don't speak the language and you're in another country with a culture that's just so completely different from your, your own. And I think they eventually just got really kind of sad and depressed being here. And they were like, I want to go back to India because I don't have any networks or friends here. I just want to go back to my home. So the only time I was really exposed to Indian culture was when they were here because they didn't speak English. And I was forced to like try to find ways to communicate with them. So I was trying to learn words here and there, but I never actually became fluent in the language enough to actually speak it. Right. And what about your Jamaican side? Did your dad bring Jamaican culture and food no. and music and all that kind of stuff into it either? Or did no, it, no not at all. Not at all. It's so it's really interesting how I have these two very distinct cultural sides to me and did not grow up learning about it at all. These were all things I had to learn about on my own when I was an adult and like people actually tease me because Indian and Jamaican, right. You think I love spicy food. (laughs) I like, I remember when I was like six years old and I put a drop of hot sauce on a fork and just tasted it. And I was crying. I was like, why is this so hot? This is awful. And I hate spicy food. Like I cannot handle spicy food at all. People don't understand. They're like, but you're Jamaican, you're Indian. How do you not like spicy food? I I don't know. Maybe I'm adopted. I don't know. But keep it away from me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, you know, it's really interesting, uh, you know, in terms of raising kids, because with respect to spicy food, you know, I had this question. I have a lot of Desi friends, you know, from around the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. And I asked this couple, you know, who I'm friends with, who have multiple kids at the time. They had multiple kids who were probably under the age of eight, let's say. And they were telling me, they're like, yeah, my five-year-old in his lunchbox, when he goes to, you know, first grade, he brings suicide hot sauce (laughs) in his lunchbox. God, no. And I'm like, how do you, like, because I had the legitimate question. I was like, at what point, like when you come from a culture whose food is that spicy, right? (laughs) At what point do you introduce that to your kids, You know, like, did they get a certain age? And they basically said to me, they're like, whatever food we're eating, we just always fed the same thing to our kids. So they just basically, that's all they ever knew. And they just grew up on it. Yeah, my sister and I, complete opposite. She loves spicy food. And apparently when she was a baby and my grandparents were living with us, they put spices in her baby food. And then, but my dad didn't like that. He was like, do not put spices in my child's food. That is not going to fly. By the time I was born, like my food was bland. They never put anything in my food. And so now we have like these two sisters, one loves 
loves spicy food and the other has absolutely no palate for spices at all. In fact, like people made fun of me because I loved bland food growing up. I would tell my mom, don't put any salt in my food. I don't want any salt. I want bland food, no taste. <laughs> and then when I married my husband, who's Nigerian, you know, Nigeria is like, they really know how to cook. He, he's very good at cooking. And I would try to cook, <laughs> cook things. He'd be like, why is there no spice in this? Like, do you, do you not like salt? I don't understand. <laughs> what do you have against salt? <laughs> That's amazing. And I will tell you this too. I went to Nigeria for the first time last year in 2019. I spent about three months in West Africa. And one of those months was in Nigeria. And in addition to the Nigerian food, which is delightful and wonderful, (laughs) I'll tell you what the amazing surprise to me was about the Nigerian culinary scene in Lagos is the caliber and the quality of the Indian food. Because in the African countries that were former British colonies, so Mm -hmm. Nigeria, Ghana, right, even Kenya, places like that, there are substantial Indian populations, right? I believe that, yeah. And it is just amazing the caliber of the Indian food that you can have in a country like Nigeria or Ghana. And I will tell you, as I've been telling everyone this, because that was one of the most un- suspecting delights. <laughs> I mean, of my, I mean, I had, I really didn't plan on that. And then all of a sudden I'm having this Indian food and it is, I mean, the top level, like I would say outside of India and maybe Kuala Lumpur, which is about 30% uh, Indian population, right? Outside of there, unequivocally, the best Indian food I've had in my life is in West Africa, hands down. Wow. <laughs> and Ghana and Nigeria, both absolutely spectacular. That's so cool. I never would have suspected that. You know, I'm going to actually ask my husband if he likes Indian food because like he's never brought it up. We don't really go out to eat Indian food, but I wonder if he has like a palate for it based on the time that he spent in Nigeria. But, but you know, it's crazy, right? It's like I'm surrounded by all these amazing cultures, right? I've got Jamaican, Indian, Nigerian, and yet all of these people just don't seem to want to like display or share their culture with me. And like, here I am like trying to get in touch with my roots. I want to go to Nigeria, Jamaica and India. And my mom, my mom's like anti-Indian. My dad never talks about Jamaica. Tried to get my husband to go to Nigeria with me. He's like, no, I'm good. Like, What is wrong with y'all? Like, I'm so excited about your cultures, but they just don't seem to care at all. And it's just so, it's not, frustrating, but I think it's just very ironic. I mean, when you finally get to West Africa, like you're going to have such an amazing fusion of these cultures because the other thing in West Africa is that there is a substantial Rastafari and dancehall reggae scene in West Africa. It's amazing. And so what you have is, I mean, in part, it's like kind of from Jamaica, right? Like they sort of adopted this. But of course, a lot of the people that are in Jamaica, right? I mean, that's part of the West African diaspora, right? In terms of the the whole slave trade. And everything else, how they got there in the first place. And now they're playing Jamaican reggae back in West Africa. But the other thing is that you have West African reggae artists, right? Oh. So you have Nigerian reggae artists doing reggae and you have Ghanaian reggae artists. I mean, I, and I mean dance hall, right? So you have yeah, Ghanaian yeah. dance hall artists doing dance hall and now they're doing collabs. So like some of the top 
you know, Ghanaian, the top probably Ghanaian reggae artist just did a collab with Beanie Man. <laughs> I mean, it's like amazing to see this. So like when you go to West Africa and you're like mm-hmm. eating amazing Indian food and you're like going to like dance hall shows, I mean, you're going to be like, like all your worlds are going to come together. Like, it's amazing. Wow. That's yeah. so cool. I, <laughs> like all my cultures in one place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Right? And your husband's Nigerian. I think it's in your future at some point. But Like, why won't you go here with me? That'd be really great if you would. Like, I just wish they would be as excited about their cultures as I am excited about their cultures. <laughs> well, whenever you go, I mean, post-COVID, whenever it's safe to travel again, I mean, I'm happy to give you some tips on it because it's a really, really special region of the world for sure. Yeah, for sure. I am super interested, though, in to sort of learn a little bit about, given that upbringing that you just described, how did you eventually get into world travel? Where did that passion come from? And what was your initial sort of entree into world travel? Yeah, so that's so interesting because growing up, I never had a passion or an interest for travel. The only country I was ever remotely interested in was Egypt. And it's just because for some, for whatever reason, when I was a kid, I had this odd obsession with like ancient Egyptian mythology and culture. And <laughs> I just swore I was going to like grow up and marry Brendan Fraser. I don't know why. I think I just fell in love with him in the mummy movies. <laughs> and so I just loved anything that had to do with Egypt. And it just so happened that when I was in college, class was canceled one day. And I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I was just a very studious kid. I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Now the class is canceled. Do I just go back to my dorm? I don't know. I was just walking through campus trying to figure out what my next move was. And something caught my eye. It was like a table with these brochures on it. And it had a picture of Egypt on it. And I looked at it and it said, study abroad in Egypt. I was like instantly fascinated. Never had a desire to travel. But when I saw that brochure... I said, I'm doing this. I'm going to do this. So I made up in my head right then there. Like when I make up my mind to do something, like I'm doing it. So I called my dad. I was just like, yeah, there's a study abroad trip to Egypt. I'm going to go. And he was like, oh, cool. Yeah. Like just call me later and we'll talk about it. I said, oh, no, we're not talking about it. I'm doing it. Like I, <laughs> I, I'm an adult. I work. I have my own money. I'm, I'm paying for this. The deadline is actually today. So there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> Almost had a heart attack, which is crazy because like he traveled for a living, but for whatever reason, he was really against me traveling. He's just a very, very protective father. You know, he has two girls. So the idea of his youngest daughter traveling abroad, especially to a Middle Eastern country for him, in his mind, he just imagined the worst happening. So I went, I went and like, this was back before social media and, you know, there was just not as much of a connectivity culture. So it was really cool just going there and disconnecting. It was a completely different time, like traveling back because it was 2006. So I, you know, there was no Instagram. I didn't like, I wasn't into Facebook. I didn't even call like anybody. I called nobody. Like every now and then I would go into an internet cafe and I'd send an email just to let them know I was alive. And that was it. Like I was completely disconnected the whole time. And my parents were freaking out. 
but I didn't care. I just wanted to fully immerse myself in this like crazy experience of being in another country that, you know, was just like kind of like this childhood obsession of mine. But I remember like the thing that I remember the most when I first got there, it was being on the plane and like looking out and just being surrounded by sand as the plane was landing. And I was just so excited. I was like, oh my God, like I'm not in, you know, Kansas anymore or I'm not in Georgia anymore. Like, oh my God, like this is a completely different place on another side of the world. Like things like this exist. I've only seen this in the movies. And I think in my head, I just completely romanticized this entire trip because it was just so different from anything I'd ever experienced before. It was my first international trip. And, you know, people tease me because they're like, you know, usually when, you know, people go out of the country for the first time, it's to Mexico, somewhere in the Caribbean. You went to Egypt. Nobody does that. And they were like, were you not scared? And I said, no, it was just so thrilling for me. And then I I literally think sometimes I'm just like missing like the fear gene or something because sometimes I just make decisions that don't make sense. (laughs) I'm just like very fearless about it. I like never thought about anything that could go wrong. I was just like, no, like it's Egypt. Why wouldn't I want to go to Egypt? And it was just such a cool cultural experience. Like everything fascinated me, everything. That travel high that I had from visiting Egypt I chased it for years. Like I wanted to recreate it. Like, you know, I tried to visit so many other countries trying to find that same high that I got when I went to Egypt. And for the longest time, I thought maybe like no country could just ever measure up to Egypt. I'm super curious because I've been to Egypt probably about three times and I've spent about a year there. And the first time I went though myself, I can remember how different it was from any other place that I had been because I had traveled to other places, you know, and I had traveled in Europe and I had traveled in, you know, some other places. But the first time you go to Egypt, the intensity, (laughs) I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's just like electric and there's just, it's just so intense and so fast paced and so dense. And and you're just like, if you've never, I mean, trying to cross the street, there's no traffic lights. There's no, no, there's no stop in traffic. (laughs) The cars don't ever stop and there are no functioning traffic lights. And so you just walk in front of four lanes of, of cars that are oncoming in order to get to the other side of the street. And when you've never done that before, you know, I mean, I've now, I've subsequently, I've been to Delhi and I've been to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and I've been to a number of places that, you know, have similar types of dynamics with the motorcycles driving the sidewalk, (laughs) this giant sort of seemingly, it's seemingly chaotic. But then when you live there and you stay there for a while, you're like, oh my gosh, is there organization to this chaos somehow? Like, like this is all highly organized chaos, you know? It's highly organized chaos for people who grow up in organized chaos. Right. But if you don't right. grow up in organized chaos, it's right. just chaos to right. you. Right, right. Yeah. And it can be overwhelming the first time yeah. you get to Egypt if you haven't been to a place like that before, you know? But yeah, yeah I, I would love to hear your impressions, your experience, and then, yeah. Yeah, post-Egypt in terms of your travel journey. Well, first of all, yes, can totally relate to the traffic <laughs> dynamic. Like I remember the first time trying to cross the street and I was just like, yeah, they'll stop, right? <laughs> they'll definitely stop, right? <laughs> I was just walking and the cars weren't stopping. I was like, 
oh shit, like this car's <laughs> not going to stop. I had to haul ass because this thing was about to run me over. I was like, okay, noted. Like if I'm going to be walking around the streets of Cairo, I got to be smart. <laughs> like this is not a, a city where there are stop signs, traffic lights, seat belts, or any like respect of pedestrians. So yeah, let me just be careful. So yeah, I think because it, I'd never experienced anything like that before, I completely romanticized it, right? Because it was like kind of living this fantasy that I had when I was a kid of visiting a country that I'd only seen in movies. And, oh man, it was just so mind-blowing and it just satisfied like every sense that I had. And then, But then, you know, years later, I went back. So this would have been, I guess, 13 years later, um, cause I just couldn't take it anymore. I was like, I gotta go back. I gotta go back to Egypt. Like it was my first love and I just know I'm going to have the same experience and it's going to be like a high all over again. And it completely was not. And it made me realize that I'd spent this whole time chasing like this, this travel high that I had felt, you know, my first time going to Egypt. And I just, you know, kind of convinced myself that maybe just no other country could ever measure up to Egypt. Maybe there's just something special about Egypt. But I realized it really was just the first time travel high of like going somewhere that you've never been before, you know, because like they always say, like, once you once you get your first passport stamp, you just never go back. You get addicted to travel. I think that's what happened to me. Because when I went back the second time, I, I was just not into it at all. I mean, it was a completely different experience. It didn't feel new and exciting. And I didn't feel as much like, you know, I was getting my cherry popped, you know, in the travel scene, because I'd been to so many places after that. And it's like, I also just started noticing things that I didn't notice the first time that didn't sit well with me. So like, you know, when I first started traveling, I kind of looked at travel or like the destinations I visited with, with like rose colored glasses. But over time, and especially once I started getting more into sustainability and, you know, social activism, I started looking at destinations with a much more critical lens. And so traveling at age 20 versus traveling at 33, it was just completely different experiences for me because now I'm looking at things with a much more critical lens versus a happy-go-lucky, bubbly one where I'm just kind of like putting this country up on a pedestal and, you know, making it seem like it's this perfect place where nothing goes wrong. And, you know, back then I'm, I'm looking at people who are on the streets or destitute and poor. And I'm like romanticizing it. Like, Oh my God, how cool. Like, look at them. It's like poverty porn in a way, but like now that I'm older and I know better, um, I see it for what it is. And I don't, try to romanticize like another culture and their destitution or their poverty in any way. So it's just, it's a completely different experience. Like when you travel after you start kind of acknowledging that, you know, sometimes when we travel, we kind of go to these places with what's called a tourist gaze. And the tourist gaze was a term, I forgot who, who coined it, but it's basically just saying that, you know, kind of like, especially when you're Western, you kind of travel to countries with like this almost sense of privilege where it's like you expect other cultures to be like authentically cultural and kind of provide you this authentic cultural experience. But maybe that authentic cultural experience is actually holding that culture back from progressing 
because they're trying to satisfy tourists by meeting their expectations of how that culture should be. So it's just a completely different experience, kind of like traveling after just kind of getting all of these um, accumulated experiences over time and knowing what to look out for now that I'm older and a little bit wiser. Yeah, I think that's really important that you are not just traveling as a tourist who's going to go and stay in a touristy hotel and Mm -hmm. roll around and see the whatever monuments or museums or whatever the sort of tourist track is, or go to, you know, one of these resorts and just go stay out on the beach in a resort and, you know, do that thing and then be like, oh, I went to such and such place, you know? And when you start actually immersing yourself in the place where you are, and then you start to actually look and you start to notice that, of course, yeah, there's all kinds of inequality and social stratification and groups that have different histories of struggle in this country and all types of really problematic things that are going on at all of these different levels. And you can find those nuances in every society. And so if you're there and you're willing to look, then you're starting to understand not just one sort of blanket narrative about, you know, Egyptians, this or any other group you know, this, but rather there's all different types of people that live in Egypt that have all of these different histories and experiences in there. And you start to see that entire tapestry of like diverse experiences and what's going on. And there is amazing and wonderful and incredible and extraordinary and hopeful stuff. And then there's also really sad and depressing and demoralizing stuff. And that's the case in most places, if you're willing to look. Even America, right? Of course, (laughs) especially. Especially America. You know, people romanticize America. And I'm like, you have no idea what we've been through in this country. And it shows. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah. And such as all these other places. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to go in being open to that the complexity of that reality, you know, and being able to then do the same thing that we do here or anywhere else, which is support groups that are in oppressed struggles or advocate for positive things. And then also be able to appreciate and enjoy all the wonderful things that are there and stuff like that. I think that's definitely something that's a really, really important travel lesson that as you travel more and you travel longer and you stay places longer, yes, you can really start to do that. So yeah, I would love to get your take though on your India travel experiences because you alluded to the fact that you were not very culturally connected growing up, but then what was it that made you travel to India and in your travel experiences to India, how did you connect with that culture and what were those experiences like? So I've been to India three times and I can tell you that there is definitely a difference in each time I went. So I went, um, I think the first time I went was maybe 10 or 11 years ago. And that was with my mom and my sister. And this was before I was a content creator. So I was just very immersed in the experience and I was with family. And so it was a very special trip for me. And my grandparents were alive back then. So I got to spend quality time with them. We explored Kerala and it was exhilarating. You know, we started out at my grandparents' house and then we ended up going on a road trip through Kerala so that we could actually explore like the countryside. And so it was just one big adventure for me. And I really like cherished that. Then fast forward to 2017 and I went back as a content creator purely really just to create content and it was a different experience and I and I wasn't with family I was actually with a friend of mine who was a photographer 
He was actually a white guy. So it was a much different dynamic traveling with a white male versus, you know, two women of color. I felt like we got stared at a lot more. Like people were really fascinated with him in particular, I guess, because he was white and he was a photographer and he had tattoos everywhere. So everybody wanted to take pictures with him. So it was a completely different experience, you know, just kind of like observing, say, traveling with a guy for the first time. And a white guy at, at that versus traveling with, you know, two women who are two women of color. And especially like my mom actually being from the country, it was like we got treated very differently. It's like I almost felt like a celebrity when I was traveling with him because everybody was so fascinated by him and wanted to like ask him questions and take pictures with him. It was just so interesting. And it was also interesting. It was an interesting dynamic, like with us both being creators, like him being a photographer and me being a content creator and, you know, also trying to like really fully immerse ourselves in this, this experience of traveling, you know, through this chaotic destination and trying to like fully immerse ourselves, but also capture content at the same time. And I think I always just kind of kind of lied to myself and kind of pretended like I could do both 100%, but you really can't because you can't be like a 100% like into trying to capture content and be focused on like posting stories and satisfying your requirements for, you know, creating content in whatever destination you're in while also paying attention and taking in everything that you see and fully immersing yourself in the destination. You can't do both at 100%, like one thing's going to suffer. And so for me, it was like the immersion part, right? Because I'm so focused on capturing the destination that I'm not fully 100% experiencing it. I'm really just experiencing it through my lens the whole time versus being fully present and really taking it in with all of my senses. So it were like two completely different experiences. And by far the best experience I had was the last time I went to India. It was because on this particular trip, we didn't do anything. We went and we visited my mom. She has a coconut farm in Kerala and we went there and it was just like out in the countryside, just far away from everything. And we were there for like almost a month and every day we just woke up and just enjoyed being there, just being present in this country, learning from my mom about farming and Indian culture and just relaxing. And it was a very big moment for me because I had been like this adventure traveler, this thrill seeker the entire time when I was traveling. And then for the first time, I actually just kind of did nothing and experienced slow travel, quote unquote, for the first time where I just really wasn't doing anything. And I wasn't going out and exploring. I was just kind of being present and just letting myself learn about the culture and immerse myself in it, it was a completely different experience. And it was mind blowing for me. Like it kind of changed my perspective on travel from feeling like I have to go to these different places and see and do and feel and touch and experience everything in order for it to be a satisfactory experience to realizing that I can be just as satisfied going somewhere and just being still, especially if I'm with somebody 
who can authentically teach me about that particular culture. Like it was equally satisfying just waking up and being present in Kerala every day as it was say going on some like great big crazy adventure where I'm switching hotels every two days and going to all these different cities and experiencing all these different cultural groups and seeing all these different sites. Like that was, it was equally satisfying just not doing any of that and just being there. And it was the best, my best experience in India thus far. And you're eating three meals a day of South Indian food. So whatever else is happening, whatever else is happening, it's going to be amazing. (laughs) Yo, the food, it was like, that made me fall in love with Indian food. And I think the other thing that really helped me appreciate this particular trip was that I kind of turned into a foodie because like when I went vegan in 2016, I started experiencing food differently and I started experiencing travel differently. Like at some point I started traveling for food. Like for me, the highlights of my trip were going (laughs) to like really good restaurants, really good vegan restaurants. And so my mom was teaching me how to veganize traditional Indian dishes. And it was like a really cool thing to share with her because she wasn't really into the whole vegan or vegetarian thing. And she was nervous about having to feed me when I got there. And so she quickly learned that when I got there, that it actually wasn't that hard to veganize the dishes that she normally ate, like just finding substitutes for like the dairy products that she typically put in her food. And for her, she learned a lot because she never realized how much easier it was than she realized it was to like make dishes completely vegan. So that was like a really cool experience for her. And so it was like a bonding experience for us both being able to share, you know, that part of me that was like so important, especially a part of me that I had grown to love about travel. Cause like I said, I kind of got into this place where food was like a big part of why I liked to travel now. So, which is really crazy because before I went vegan, I never cared about food. Like food, like I said, you know, I was into blandness. Food was not a thing for me. I didn't care about food. But once I went vegan and I started appreciating food more, food became a really important aspect of my travels. That's amazing. Well, I would love to hear a little bit more about your sort of journey and discovery of sustainability in general, but also like specifically your sort of journey to veganism and plant-based nutrition and how that all sort of evolved. Yeah. It's so interesting for me because it just unraveled almost strategically in a way, but you know, it wasn't like, it just was just fate the way it unraveled. So it started out with a trip to Bali that I went on back in 2015. At the time I had two friends of mine who really loved to travel. We decided every year we were going to just like pick a new continent to visit and just take a girl's trip. And so that year we chose Asia. And so we ended up going to Bali. So we went to Bali and one of my friends is, you know, she's pretty sustainable. She's really into trying to live an eco-friendly life. And I used to just kind of like look at most people like they were hippies. I, I never really understood like why they were so adamant about doing certain things for the environment. I'd be like, oh, it's not, it's not a big deal, right? But I guess for me, it was just, it was so out of sight, out of mind. I'd never experienced pollution or seen it firsthand for myself until I went to Bali. And it was a shock for me because for me, you know, when I think of Bali, 
you know, in my head, I was picturing like these glossy images of pristine beaches and paradise and, you know, my toes walking on white sand. I went to this beach and it was a local beach. It wasn't like a resort beach. It was a local beach. And that's an important distinction. So I rolled up to this local beach and it was just covered in litter. So my, my feet weren't touching white sand because there was just all this piles of trash everywhere. And I was in shock. I said, oh my God, I get it now. I see why you guys are so <laughs> such big advocates for the environment. Like, this is bad. This is terrible. And she was telling me, she was like, yeah, like this is what happens, you know, like even in America, like the little things that we do, you know, that's just so out of sight, out of mind for us. You know, these things that these bad habits that we get into, you know, this uh, constant overuse of plastic, for example, that ends up in the oceans can end up on the other side of the world, polluting a beach like Bali, like, you know, plastic and trash, it travels. And so it just really opened my eyes to my individual responsibility in the world and how much of an impact just me as an individual can have on other places and including like the destinations that I love and that I I cherish. So that was, that kind of opened the door for me to start paying more attention to environmentalism issues and sustainable living. And so at that point, that's when I kind of started working on myself, kind of going on my own little sustainable journey, trying to figure out ways in which I could be more sustainable and then even travel more sustainably and pick more sustainable hotels and have better habits when I travel so that I don't leave such a major impact on the places that I visit. And then fast forward a year from then, it was, let's see, 2016. And that's when I decided to go vegan. And I watched a documentary after I went vegan and found out that there's a huge link between veganism and environmentalism. And it all just kind of clicked for me. I said, wow, like I went vegan for ethical reasons, like because I really love animals. But now I have this other reason to be vegan. Like I didn't realize how much the agriculture in the animal agriculture in, industry was contributing to environmental destruction. So then I had an additional reason to also be vegan. So that was really exciting. And then a year later from that point, when I became vegan, I bought an electric car. And then a year after that, I built a solar powered smart home. So it was like all these things. It's like every year, it's like my journey was just you know, progressing and progressing and progressing. And I was making like all these different changes. And that's why I really love to tell people like, you don't have to make a shit ton of changes overnight. It takes time. Like sustainability really is a journey. You don't just like wake up one day and you're living this sustainable life. Like it takes time. It takes a lot of time to unlearn habits that you had and that you learned and picked up growing up. Because really, if you think about it, like the way we are as adults, right, the things that we do, they're a result of like the conditioning that we've had based on how we were raised in childhood. And so, and that includes like with sustainability and like little habits that we have, including like just going for for plastic in terms of like having like this disposable mindset. Like we want everything now. We want things to be convenient, but like sustainability is more so about a reusable mindset, right? 
and a long-term mindset, a sustainable mindset. And so it, that takes a lot of unconditioning. So it took years. Like my sustainable journey started in 2015 and now it's 2020. So it's been five years. And it's just like every year, I just kept making more and more changes to my life until I felt a lot more comfortable with like calling myself an activist and really feeling like um, I could call myself like an expert in this field. But it took time. It just wasn't something that happened overnight, but it all started (laughs) with a trip to Bali and seeing what I saw. And so it's so interesting because I will always forever have this respect for travel because I feel like it was travel that helped unlock all these sides to me that I didn't know were there. It really helped me grow as a person and helped me find and discover myself in ways that I never would have been able to had I not taken that first trip to Egypt. It was the start of my journey to self-discovery. And I'm really grateful that, you know, I became a traveler because it led me to who I am today. That is awesome. We've got a lot of world travelers that listen to the show. So I want to ask you if you can sort of break down some of the main pillars of eco-friendly travel. And if you can give some specific examples or some specific things the travelers can start doing right after this episode for reducing their footprint around the world. Yeah. The interesting thing about like sustainability is there are so many different aspects to it, right? Like I think sometimes we just look at it from an environmental perspective, but there's also this humanistic side to it. So especially when it comes to travel, right? Sustainability is not just about preserving the environment. It's also about preserving the local culture. And in terms of travel, it's about traveling in a way that causes the least amount of impact to, you know, local societies, as well as the environment that they live in. So on an environmental tip, there are very small basic things that travelers can literally just like implement now, here and now, after they turn off this podcast, they can start doing this. And it's in the way that they pack, right? So when you travel, Think about, again, like having a reusable mindset versus a disposable one. So pack a reusable water bottle, pack a reusable bag so that when you're going shopping in all these like markets and soups and bazaars, you have a reusable bag with you instead of taking every single plastic bag that they hand to you because all of that leads to additional waste that their country just doesn't need. So little things like that that you can start implementing in the way that you pack. And then on a bigger scale, you can also choose to patron companies that prioritize sustainability. So stay at sustainable hotels and you can use websites like greenpearls.com. You can use Wyage, which is actually a, a black owned sustainable hotel curator. And you can use those websites, literally just go to those websites, type in your destination and it'll put up, pull up a list of sustainable hotels that you can go to. Cause there are levels to sustainability, you know, like a sustainable hotel isn't just going to like some Marriott or a Hilton and seeing like a sign that says, if you don't have your room clean today, we'll give you a $2 credit. Like that's like the bare minimum. There are literally hotels that are designed with sustainability in mind. Those are some really great websites that you can use to find sustainable hotels. And then on the humanistic side, you want to make sure that you're putting money back into the local economy. Because I think, you know, sometimes we have this tendency to travel 
and state places that are very familiar to us, like brands that we are familiar with, U.S. brands, you know, international brands, Marriott, Hilton, and not to knock any of them. But if you're going to travel, try to stay at more local hotels, try to put money back into their economy, like the people who actually live there, because they need it. You know, and a lot of these countries rely on tourism, too for income, which is really sad because with uh, what's going on in the world right now, a lot of them are, you know, kind of suffering and trying to figure out how to recoup that loss from not having the tourism industry in their countries be as active as it once was. And then also you can choose local tour operators. So that's another big one, right? So again, like it's very easy to kind of like just do a Google search, search for a tour and just like pick it. But if you like just really do some research, spend some time doing research and finding a really good local tour operator, bonus points if you can find a good, sustainable, eco-friendly local tour operator and just really check to make sure that, you know, it's local, the money's going back into the local economy, then that's one way to incorporate sustainability into your travels. So you kind of want to think about it on the environmental side, but as well as the people side. So make sure that you're traveling in a way that helps local people be as sustainable as possible and help them sustain their cultures and their livelihoods for as long as possible when you travel. I think that's a really good point. And I think that these discussions about travel ethics Mm -hmm. are really, really important to have, especially as people are traveling more and traveling for longer terms and things like that. And really understanding who you're patronizing, where the money is going and how your interaction in that local area is benefiting or not benefiting the local community. Right. Mm -hmm. And so some of the stuff that I try to do is if I'm going to go on a particular type of tour, like, so for example, one of the things that I love to do and I look for as soon as I get to a new city is I look to see if there is a graffiti culture there. And if there is a street art tour of that city. And I love to do that because that shows me the city through the eyes of the street artists who live there, who are from there and typically who are often from more marginal parts of society and are using an unfiltered artistic expression of their narrative, which is often sort of an anti-establishment or counter hegemonic narrative that is not filtered by government or corporations or the tourism board. Right. (laughs) Exactly. So that's one of the things that I love to do. And I'm also a a huge hip hop fan and I appreciate the whole history of graffiti art. And and I like to see how it manifests around the world and all of that sort of as well. But when I go to look for those tours, I also want to see who's running them. Mm -hmm. Are these being run by the graffiti artists who did the art? who are now running tours and are getting money back into the pockets of the artists to help sustain their ability to keep producing this art? Or is this just, you know, some other entity that is taking people around and profiting off of other people's art, right? So if, and sometimes the answer is that both are available. So if both are available, I'm going to go support the graffiti artists, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of stuff I think is really, really important and to understand and a lot of times I'll evaluate, you know, things based on ethics where like, would you go on a tour of this? And the answer is sometimes it depends who's running it and where the money is going. Right. Cause sometimes you'll have tours of slums or tours of favelas in Brazil or tours of things like that. And it's like, would you go on this tour? And part of the question is who's running it? 
Who's benefiting from it? What's the purpose of the tour? What am I going to see? And, and what is going to be the financial impact of that? Right? That is key. And in some cases, it may be that the local community has put this together and they're running it totally organically and they're bringing the money into the community and using it as a way to benefit the people there. And in other cases, it's a really problematic situation that is definitely not that. And so it's important to go that next level and to really understand how this stuff is organized and who's going to be the beneficiary. Correct. That is the key. Where is the money going? Because if the money is going to some major corporation or some like super wealthy company and not actually back into the pockets of the community that I'm traveling through and you know, actually experiencing, then why would I patron that? Like, I don't want to contribute to that. Okay. For example, like when I was in Cape Town, I was touring a township. I made sure that the tour that I was going on, it was led by a local and it was operated by a local because I would not feel comfortable with touring a township that, you know, where I'm learning like the history of poverty in this area. And then they're not even getting the money for me visiting their local community. That, that wouldn't sit well with me. So you always want to make sure that that money is being pumped back into the, the local economy and the, the local people of the particular like town or destination that you're visiting in, because they are the ones who need the money and they're the ones who are putting in the, the labor to give you that experience. I want to ask you, though, about one experience that you had that is super unique. And I was wondering if you can talk about the time that you got to fly on the most eco-friendly flight in the history of aviation. I would love for you to give the context about how you got onto that flight and then what it was like. Yeah, that was actually a really cool experience. And I was actually directly invited by United, which to me was an honor. It was such a big moment for me because that was the year I rebranded. I had been a travel influencer for most of my career. And then the year that I got invited on that flight was the year I started kind of owning this new direction that I wanted to go in of sustainability. So for them to recognize me as a sustainable traveler, that was an honor for me. So they invited me to experience this flight and it was just me. It was a United flight attendant named Love um, and she was an influencer. And it was also adventure junkie, TV host (laughs) and founder of Earth Echo, Philippe Castell. And it was just three of us and we were invited to experience this flight. And it was just a very significant moment in the progression of environmentalism in the travel space to one, experience this (laughs) with Philippe Castell, which is really, really awesome. And to also see the aviation industry making that kind of step. Because as we all know, the aviation industry has a long way to go in reducing its environmental impact. And so I'm really proud to have witnessed such a major corporation like United kind of leading that way for others to follow in its eco-conscious footsteps. I always talk about how I want to advocate for kind of bridging the gap between like individual responsibility and, you know, systemic change because you can't have real sustainable change. You can't have like a full on transition into a sustainable future if it's just us regular folks doing all the work to try to be more sustainable. Like we need corporations involved. We need the government involved. So we need more businesses like United 
recognizing that they need to change their products and services to give us sustainable options to partake in. Because otherwise, the only other option is for us to change our habits and say travel less to reduce our carbon footprint, right? So the fact that they're offering these options and they're making these strides to make their flights better for the environment, that really kind of reduces the pressure on the consumer. So we flew with sustainable biofuel. We dined with wooden cutlery, you know, all these things that you kind of don't even think about when you're on a plane, but like think about all that plastic, all the plastic utensils you get, all the food that comes wrapped in plastic, like all those things, they add up and they lead to a lot of waste in the airline industry. So we had wooden cutlery. We wiped our hands with bamboo napkins. We drank from It was an industry first, fully recyclable paper hot beverage cup. These were really big for an airline to do because most airlines produce so much waste and they don't really think about those little changes that they can make to reduce their waste and to um, reduce their impact on the environment. And sustainable biofuel is just a really big deal in general. I mean, I'm already about electric cars and I'd love for planes to be electric too, but that's just not a thing right now. I'm sure they're working on it, but it's just not here yet. So the next best option is biofuel and using biofuel. It's like one of the most effective ways an airline can reduce its impact on the environment. And the fuel that they used for this particular flight was called the EcoSkies flight. It came from agricultural waste and it had 60% less emissions than normal fuel, which is really big. 60% is is quite a bit. Um, And if you think about it, if more airplanes, think about how many airplanes you see in the sky every day, if all of them used 60% less emissions, that would have a really big impact over time. And no other airline had ever combined that sustainable aviation biofuel with zero carbon waste and carbon offsets all together, like in one flight. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. So to be able to experience that for the first time in history, that was a pretty special moment for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I want to switch gears now and I want to start asking you some business questions. I would love to start off just a little bit by hearing about your entrepreneurial transition. You were in the corporate world for many years. And can you talk about the way that you made that entrepreneurial transition in terms of building up to it and then actually making the leap to being a full-time location-independent entrepreneur? Yeah, I'm so glad I did it because for the longest time, I looked down on entrepreneurship. I think growing up, I just had a very, very traditional 
upbringing and outlook when it came to work. So much so that even though I was in a creative field and people would look at me like I was crazy, like, why are you in corporate? You're so creative. Like you should be an entrepreneur. Even though, you know, people would tell me that it's still, I couldn't wrap my head around the idea of being an entrepreneur. I looked at entrepreneuring like they were just like struggling artists because I was in the creative industry. And so that's just kind of how I, I saw it. And it wasn't until I became a lot more mature and understood what entrepreneurship was that I realized that I was just kind of in this corporate slave mentality where I thought that the only way to be well off was to work for somebody else when in actuality, I have more of a chance achieving like extreme wealth if I left corporate and tried to do something on my own. But if I'd stayed in corporate, I would literally just be stuck getting a $2,000 raise every single year until I retired. And so I never really thought of it like that because growing up, I was just taught that it was just such an honor to work for a big corporation. Right. And, and I was, I was working for like billion dollar companies like the Home Depot. Um, I worked for the Weather Channel. I worked for WebMD and I wore it like a badge of honor. But one day I decided to start like a little entrepreneur club with my friends and I didn't know much about entrepreneurship. I just knew that it was like this buzzword that I kept hearing about. And so we all kind of gathered in a circle and we just started off by just talking about what our interests were. And I said, well, I'm interested in traveling and I really like shooting videos. Those are like my two things that I'm interested in. I have this interest and then I have this skill set. The skill set is video production. The passion is travel. And so everybody was like, well, duh, merge your passion and your skill set together and start a travel vlog. I said, oh, that's brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? And so that's when my travel blog began. And I didn't know anything about travel blogging. <laughs> I just kind of entered into this new, <laughs> this, this new career path that I knew nothing about and didn't even try to research, thinking that I knew everything about it. Because, you know, I was just dumb 20 something year old who thought she knew everything. And so I thought that blogging was you writing articles that sounded like something out of say the travel channel. Like I thought it had to be super polished. I thought it had to sound like a publication. And it wasn't until like, I really got into it. And then I started like reading other people's blogs and actually researching things and watching vlogs that I learned that that's like the opposite of what blogging and vlogging is. Like you're supposed to be yourself. You're supposed to really use your voice and not shy away from showing people who you are. Like that's what makes a blogger different from other bloggers is incorporating your story into it. It's not just posting a bunch of tips and, you know, travel advice that you found on <laughs> travel channel and thinking that you're doing something special and interesting or professional. You know, it's about sharing your personal experiences or, you know, whatever your expertise is and whatever subject matter that you're talking about. So then I started really bringing my personality into it. And that's when I saw my brand start to take off because it was now personalized and I was really into it and I was getting into it. I started being on camera more. I started showing myself more. And then in 2016, I went to like my first uh, travel industry conference. It was uh, the Women in Travel Summit. And just being around all of these entrepreneurs and these travel bloggers and travel vloggers and travel industry professionals, it inspired me so 
much. I finally, like for the first time, really felt like I could do this. You know, like the keynote speakers were amazing. One of the keynote speakers was Avita Robinson from the Madness Travel Tribe. And her story is just incredible. She's an incredible entrepreneur. And then the other keynote speaker was Hey Nadine, who was a travel vlogger. And Hey Nadine really inspired me because she made a living. She made a whole career out of doing travel videos and video production is my background and traveling is my passion. And those were the two things that I decided to merge together. And here this, I find this girl who's doing this thing that I said I wanted to do and she's making money and she's being successful at it. It has this whole audience. And I said, I am going to do this. I'm going to get serious about this. So that summer, I finally started like my little travel series. So I started a travel vlog series. And the first series I put out was about my trip to Peru. And because I was still in corporate, you know, I didn't have like the access or the time to travel to places nonstop to get a lot of content. So I had to get as much content as I could out of the little trips in here and there that I was taking with my little vacation time and really squeeze out as many episodes as I could. So I went to, I think, Peru for like a week and squeezed out six episodes from that one trip. And what was crazy was maybe a couple months after that first series that I posted, I got hit up by the Travel Channel. And it had always been a dream of mine to be on TV. Like I wanted to be a travel host. Like that was one of my biggest dreams. So being approached by the Travel Channel, you know, months after you kind of start this travel vlogger adventure and you really get serious about it, that was a really big deal for me. Because I realized that, wow, like all I had to do was take that leap and start getting serious about it and good things would happen. I would start getting recognized in my industry. And so long story short, it didn't go anywhere. (laughs) They said, yeah, we love your stuff, but we really want somebody with television experience. But like I'm the type of person when I hear no, I don't really hear or process it as a no. I process it as a not right now or not with us. So I said, it. Like the fact that they were even interested in me to begin with, and they gave me a shot. They wanted to present my videos to their producers. That in itself was so inspiring to me. And I just knew right then and there that I was going to quit my job. And so that was the summer of, I think, 2016. And then in 2017, as soon as I got my bonus check, because I was waiting for my bonus check for that spring to come in. And then I, I quit. So I was like, you know, as soon as I decided that I was going to quit, I I just kind of like made a plan to save as much money as possible to make sure that I had enough to hold me over for at least a year so that, you know, if worse words and things didn't go right, I'd be okay. And come that, that spring, that following spring in 2017, you know, especially after I got that big bonus check, I was like, yeah, I'm good. And I just remember turning in my two weeks notice and being so proud of myself and being so excited. And the very first job I had was that week after I quit, um, I went to the Women in Travel Summit. So full circle moment. And I was their videographer for the event. So it gave me a lot of confidence. It gave me a lot of false confidence being that it happened so quickly after I quit because after that one job was over, I was like, oh shit, I need to line up more jobs. And I didn't think this far ahead. So that's when I realized that I needed to actually have a plan for turning this into a career because, you know, YouTube ad revenue is not going to hold me over. And this one job, this one videography job that I had at Women Travel Summit isn't going to hold me over. 
um, and I can't live off of my savings forever. So I decided that until my blog took off to a point where I could get brand deals and get paid to travel, that I would start my own video production company. So I started a video production company and it actually ended up doing very well because we just live in a time where businesses need videos. And so I took that skill set that I had gained working for the Weather Channel, Home Depot, WebMD for so many years and started producing marketing videos for small businesses and some big businesses actually. And eventually it just kind of got to this place where I had to make a decision of, okay, am I going to keep on splitting my attention between my brand and my video production company? Or am I going to go full force with like this bigger dream that I had, the original dream that I had when I first quit my job because I, I couldn't do both. There was no way I could give 100% to both dreams or not both dreams because the video production company wasn't really a dream. It was more like a means to an end. But there was no way I could give 100% to both of these entrepreneurial endeavors that I was doing and expect to be super successful. So I made the decision in 2018 to really just give my blog all of me. And I stopped focusing on the video production company, even though it was like my livelihood, it was my bread and butter. But when I really, really, really went all in with my blog and my brand, I finally hit six figures. And so that was 2019. 2019 was my first six-figure year as an entrepreneur. And that's why I'll always say I never regret quitting my video production business because sometimes you have to make those kinds of decisions in order to find success in your dreams. Sometimes you have to give up certain things in order to really put all of your attention and your love and your undivided attention to like that one thing that you really, really want to succeed. You can't divide your attention between all these other things, which is really interesting because you kind of get told like when you become an entrepreneur to have multiple streams of income, multiple streams of income. But the thing you don't really realize is that you don't have all those multiple streams of income overnight. You need to kind of like start with one thing, get that off the ground and make sure you have something that can sustain you. And then you can explore other options and and have multiple streams of income. But you can't have like 10 streams of income going at one time and expect to be really successful at one of them until you actually put all your attention into that one thing and get that off the ground and then dabble into other avenues. But you got to make sure that you are sustaining yourself first and foremost before you can go on to other avenues. So that's kind of how I got into entrepreneurship and where I ended up today. But it was really just taking that leap of faith to go all in with it. That is awesome. Can you break down how you are monetizing your blog to that extent? And then once you explain that, I would love to hear, if you were to reflect back on that, what were sort of the biggest leverage points that were able to help you get your blog income up to that level? Yeah. So for me, it was finally accepting the fact that I was damn good at what I do. And I think sometimes, especially as a woman, we really downplay it, right? Like I 
kind of have this skill set in video production and content creation that I've had since I was in high school. I mean, we're talking over a decade of experience and I would downplay it all the time. And I wasn't able to see my worth. I kind of like hid behind it and kind of said, oh, anybody could, you know, make a video. Anybody can take pictures. What I do is not that special. But it was. I was good at it. And I had years of experience with major corporations doing this. And I had to start being confident in that. I had to really start leveraging, especially like that professional background in video production and photography and start selling myself because I wasn't doing a good job of it beforehand. But I also had to recognize that there were certain things that I just was not inherently good at. And so when I kind of entered into this realization that if I was going to scale and make more money, I needed to stop trying to do every single thing myself. I'm a creative. I love being creative. That's what I love to do but I'm not great at negotiation. (laughs) I'm not that great at the business side of things. And so I had to accept that that was something that I was not interested in at all. And so long as I wasn't interested in it, I wasn't going to put my heart and soul into it. I wasn't going to do what I needed to do to get paid what I was worth. So I needed to get somebody else involved who did know how to do that, who could advocate on my behalf. So I asked my husband to do it because I was like looking for a manager because I was like, you know what? I'm prepared to just give a percentage of my income to somebody to just manage my brand for me because it's, it's important. Like you got to spend money to make money. Right. And I knew that that was a significant thing that was holding my brand back from reaching the level of income that it could, because I'm too nice during negotiations and I'm terrible at contracts. So it made sense for me to invest in, you know, getting a manager, but everybody had talked to went at 20%. And I was like, okay, I want to invest, but I'm just too cheap for that. Like, I'm not going to give you 20% of my income. I just couldn't do it. So I went to my husband because he has a natural love for negotiations. He planned our entire wedding. He negotiated the shit out of all of our vendors. The only vendor we never negotiated with were the ones that I pulled in. So the photographer that we hired, I was like, no, I'm a photographer. And I know how it feels for people to try to you know, negotiate with me. And and it just makes me feel bad because they don't recognize my work. So I want to make sure the artists are getting their rate. And he was just like, fuck that. And, you know, he's like, fine, you want to pay the photographer their full rate? Go right ahead. But I'm negotiating with every other vendor we have. And he did. And he saved us so much money on our wedding. He's thrilled by negotiation. Like this is something he's passionate about. And so I said, would you like to negotiate my deals? And he was like, hell yeah, I'd love to negotiate your deals. I'm sure as hell not going to let you spend 20% of your income, you know, paying a manager when I could just do it. He's like, let's keep it in the family. So he, he negotiated the very first deal that he negotiated. He got, it was a five figure deal. And I remember when he first sent me the email, like to review before he sent it off. And I snapped. I said, are you crazy? They're not going to pay me $11,000 for this or however much he, he pitched it for. I think he, he went higher because you know, his whole thing is, oh, you know, always go high. And then because you're going to try to come down, then you meet in the middle where you actually want to be. And I was like, no, that's not how it works. You just tell them you, you go low because <laughs> nobody's going to pay that much, you know, because I had just downplayed my talent for so long. And I was not charging nearly 
what I was worth that I should have been. And so I just told him, I said, he's crazy. You're going to lose me this deal. And I hope you're okay with that. I hope you're prepared to lose your first deal on behalf of your wife. I hope you're okay with that. And they responded and they didn't even bat an eyelash. You're like, yeah, okay, sure. Cool. And I was like, well, how did you do that? I said that I would have charged a fraction of what you, you tried to charge that brand. And he was like, you're good at what you do. What are you talking about? Like your stuff is great. And he was like, you're totally worth that much money. He was like, you've been undercharging for far too long. And I'm not going to let you. So he was like, just accept it. I'm your manager now. We're going to do it my way. <laughs> and he said, there's got to be a number that you won't even get out of bed for. And I was like, okay. And so we like discussed those things in details. And like, we really became a team. We became a husband and wife team. He, he negotiates all my deals. He manages my brand. And, you know, I create the content. I come up with the ideas. And that was the thing that kind of took my brand to the next level. Like he literally tripled my income in one quarter. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how much money I had been leaving on the table because I was too nice. And because I had this fear of asking for what I really wanted. And it made me understand like the power of asking for what you want and just kind of putting yourself out there and recognizing just how good you are at something and how much your talent is worth. Like if you have brands coming to you asking for your services it's because they want something from you. You have a talent, you have a gift, you have something that they need that they can't provide for themselves. So you, you cannot be afraid to monetize that. You cannot be afraid of money. And so that was like one of my biggest lessons that I learned that year when I finally hit six figures was to not be afraid of money and to not be ashamed of making money, you know, cause I just kind of grew up with this weird mentality that like, Oh, you know, my goal isn't to make money. I just want to do something that I'm proud of and just be fulfilled. You know, it's all about fulfillment, which is very important, but you let's be real. You also need to put food on the table and there's nothing wrong with being compensated for what you do. So I have a piece of artwork in my office. It says, know your worth and add tax. And I just really resonate with it because it was a big lesson that I had to learn. It took, that was like one of the single biggest changes that I could have made for myself in my business to take it to the next level. It was recognizing that things that you aren't good at, that you're not passionate about in your business, you know, it makes sense to outsource those things because those things are only going to be a hindrance for you. They're going to hold you back from progressing and from scaling up your business. So that was a big, big thing for me. That is awesome. I want to ask you more about your relationship, which seems totally amazing <laughs> and inspiring. And I would love to just hear a little bit more about, first of all, how the two of you travel together, because I understand you have slightly different travel styles. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, would, I would love for you to, to talk about that dynamic. How does that work? Yeah, our dynamic is really interesting. We met on Match.com of all places. Looking back, we had nothing in common other than watching Game of Thrones and um, doing P90X. And I think we both had that in our bios. And so Match probably saw those two things and said, oh, these two people would make a good match. Let's, let's pair them together. And so we are, but you know, it's so weird. Cause even though we were complete opposites, as it turned out our first date, like we talked for six hours, like we were so completely different, but also 
similar in a way. It was very, very strange. And honestly, I think the thing that brought us together was our love for that's what she said jokes. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember who was the first to say that's what she said, but one of us said it. And I think it just like a light bulb went off for the other person that was just like, this could be my soulmate. Like they love, (laughs) that's what she said jokes just as much as I do. And we ended up having a contest. So whoever could say that's what she said the most on the date would win. And then the other person would have to pay for the next date. And so that's how we ended up having a second date because I I won and he had to take me out on another date and pay for it. So, so that began our romance. (laughs) The secret to a long lasting relationship is that's what she said jokes and these nuts jokes. So I fully, fully, <laughs> so, you know, it was really interesting, like just navigating our relationship and being so different. Him being so type A, he's into IT, and then I'm very type B, just very willy nilly, free spirited, you know, real traveler. He doesn't like to travel. And so this is a very interesting dynamic. Like at the time when travel was such a big passion of mine and marrying this person who did not give a shit about traveling the world. Like it was very, it was a very interesting dynamic. Like for our honeymoon, we literally had to pick two different countries just to make sure that we both got what we wanted out of our honeymoon. Because for him at the time, you know, he was just about relaxation and me, I was an adventure junkie. I wanted to go everywhere, see everything, taste everything, meet people. And he was like, it's our honeymoon. We should be at a five-star resort, like sleeping by the pool every day. And I'm like, why would I go to another country to do that? I could do that here. And so we would have very different travel styles and perspectives on travel. Like for me, travel was, you know, a cultural experience. Like I wanted to experience the destination and the cultures and, you know, all the sights and the sounds and everything. And he just wanted to go and relax. His biggest thing was just relaxing. (laughs) So he chose Bali because I had been there before. And so he felt like that could be like a familiar, safe place because it was some place that I could vouch for. Like he's he's not an adventurous guy. He's not going to go somewhere like new and different and, you know, some place where he has to like really research to see if it's safe or not. He knew I'd already been to Bali and heard good things about it. So he's like, let's go to Bali and like pick some really nice resorts and just stay at these resorts. And I said, well, if we're going to Bali, then I want to go to Hong Kong right afterwards. And I want to go explore the city and climb mountains and you're coming with me. And he was like, okay, cool. We'll do these two different countries. So I was so restless on our honeymoon. <laughs> in, in Bali, literally we stayed at three like luxury resorts and just relaxed every day. And I remember by the time we got to, I think this, it was either the second or third resort, there was a beach, like maybe within five minutes difference from our resort. And I was like, let's do something big today. Let's walk to the beach. Let's leave our resort. And he was like, but we have a private pool. Why would I go to the beach? <laughs> I don't I don't understand. Like, why do you want to go to the beach? And I was so frustrated. I was like, because don't you want to leave the resort and say that you had some kind of experience in this destination? And he was like, but the pool's right there. No, <laughs> I don't want to. And so I remember he slept in that day. Like he slept into like noon and I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And I left, I left the resort and I walked to the beach and I flew my drone and I, you know, tried to get, get everything out of my system because that's the kind of traveler that I was. Like, I just wasn't a resort type of girl. 
But, you know, we had agreed, right? So I had to make sure that we did things his way in his country. And then I just knew we were going to go all out once we got to Hong Kong because that was like my pick. And so after we left Bali, we went to Hong Kong and I was like, all right, you got to get out. You're coming with me. We're going into the streets. We're going into mountains. We're going to do it my way this time. And I will never forget the one time that I was like, hey, let's go hiking. And he copped out on me and he said, oh, I didn't bring any hiking shoes. And I was like, I didn't either, but we're still going hiking. It'll, it's going to be fun. It's going to be adventurous. And, and it was like, I think the reason why he didn't want to go was because I picked a hiking adventure that wasn't in a tour. Like it wasn't in a guidebook. It wasn't like really online. It was just like some local had told me about it. And I was like, Ooh, let's go there. And he was like, you don't know anything about this place. It's, it, you know, nobody knows anything about it. Tourists don't go there. They even said tourists don't go there. It's for locals. Why are we going to this like off the beaten path location? I said, because that's kind of travel that I, I like going to off the beaten path locations. And he just like really kept harping on the fact that he didn't have the right shoes. So I was like, you know what? I'm leaving you. And I said, sayonara. And I went and I hiked up that mountain by myself and flew my drone and had a blast. And I even met a local along the way who like taught me about like all the different vistas and places that you could see from the top of the mountain. And it was amazing. And it really made my whole trip. That was actually my favorite part of the trip. Sad to say that like it was the part of the trip that I experienced without him. (laughs) But it also was just so cute because like once I got back, he was literally in the same position I left him in, laying down on the bed, (laughs) watching TV. And I just said, that's the guy I married. And I love it. Like we're so different and it's kind of endearing in a way. And then I just got back, crawled into bed with him and we watched TV together. So it just, it just works. We're so different, but we embrace the differences and we make it work. And you said at the beginning that Carl can cook. Oh my God. Does he cook you Nigerian food? And if so, how is his jollof rice? So remember that thing I said earlier about how for some reason I got stuck with having these relatives and this husband that have these amazing cultures that don't embrace them at all. He has never once cooked me a Nigerian dish. The only time I have experienced Nigerian dishes is when we go visit his family. And I'm like, why? Why? Why won't you cook this? Like, I just, I do not get being, well, I guess I should be able to understand it, right? Because I told you I grew up not having any kind of like connection to my cultural side until I grew up and traveled. So I don't know. He just isn't interested in it. He's just so Americanized. Like even when we had our wedding, like I wanted to incorporate Indian traditions and Nigerian traditions. And he was like, we will not be incorporating Nigerian traditions. This will be a black American wedding and you can, you know, incorporate some Indian stuff if you want, but we're not, we're not putting African culture in this, in this wedding. I didn't grow up on it. I don't know anything about it. I just, I don't want anything to do with it. So it's just so interesting being surrounded by these people with like these really fascinating cultural backgrounds who don't embrace it at all. All right. So speaking of people with different cultural backgrounds, we have listeners in about 130 countries that listen to the show. And you mentioned in passing that the secret to a successful marriage is these nuts jokes. <laughs> so yes. for for the listeners that might not have the cultural context to immediately know what that means, I would love if you could explain what that 
means and give an example. So yes. So these nuts, I mean, it's it's really just as inappropriate as that's what she said. But basically, the concept <laughs> of a, a D's nuts joke is just it's being the ultimate troll and trolling somebody with the phrase D's nuts. And I don't know why he always continues to get me with this, but you know, his, his favorite one is is the most stupid one of all, which is the CD's nuts joke, <laughs> which he got me with, I think, very pretty early on in our relationship, where he was asking me if, if I got the CDs he sent me. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, nobody listens to CDs. No, I, I, I didn't get the CDs. I was like, what CDs? He was like, CDs nuts. And <laughs> I just could not believe how unbelievably corny he was. And I was like, oh my God, like this is the person that I am electing to spend the rest of my life with. Like, I really need to evaluate this decision of mine. <laughs> but it was just so adorable to me. Like his corniness is like the thing that I think really made me fall in love with him because it made me realize just how unbelievably comfortable he is with being himself, right? Because, you know, no guy would really like meet a girl and automatically think that this girl would actually enjoy a CD's nuts joke or a that's what she said joke, you know, especially early on in the relationship. Like what logical guy would think that that would be like a way to like knock me off of my feet, you know, but he did. And it just showed me how comfortable he is with being quirky and being weird and inappropriate, but like in a cute, endearing way. So I fell in love with that. So yeah, he says these nuts a lot, which is so <laughs> interesting. It's an interesting dynamic, like being married to like such a type A, you know, IT guy who also has this extremely corny side to him, um, an inappropriate side to him, but it's like really sweet and endearing in a way. But yeah, I think that's the secret to a good marriage because it's just being with somebody that you can laugh with and not in an annoying way. Like he, like it's, it's like, I want to say he annoys me, but he doesn't like, I'll, I'll pretend like he annoys me, but he knows I love it to my core. So like yesterday, right. I don't even remember what he was talking about, which says a lot about me and my listening skills, because obviously I don't listen to my husband. I just listen out for like key moments where I can say, that's what she said. And he said something about how, uh, <laughs> and he said he came from the back and I just started laughing uncontrollably. And I was like, oh, he did, did he? And I was like, have you ever come from the back? Like, what was that experience like? And, and sometimes like if he's like really trying to have a serious conversation with me, I can tell when I've like just gone too far and he's annoyed with me. <laughs> he really wanted me to be listening in that moment and I wasn't. <laughs> and I think that was one of those times. But yeah, that's pretty much every day. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I always find it really interesting to explain these nuts to people that don't have that American cultural context. So I was in this was just last year, right? And I was traveling with people from different countries. We were in Oman and a friend of mine, Carolina, I'll give her a shout out, who's from Poland, right? And has no context for these nuts. And then my homeboy, Mujtaba, who is from Southern California, who definitely has all the context for these nuts. We we're all on this trip together. So Carolina was there and she had these 
peanuts with her, right? Like small <laughs> bags of peanuts that she was eating and stuff. And she had a bunch of them and she was bringing them as snacks because we were going out on the day to go see the architecture, like the mosques and things like this around Oman. So I said to her, I said, at some point during the day, go up to Muj and extend the bag to him and offer him uh, some. But when you do that, ask him if he would like some of these nuts. And I said, and the important thing is to pronounce it exactly like that when you offer them to him. Right. (laughs) And so, and she said, why, what's going to happen? I said, just see what his reaction is. Just try it. And so she comes back to me. They both came up to me afterwards and they're like both laughing hysterically. And she's like, I did it. I said, what happened? And she, and she goes, he looked at me and he had never expecting it to come from her. Right. Cause she's from Poland. And he goes, did you say these nuts? And she goes, yeah. And then he just lost it. Right. So like, so then we're having this intercultural conversation, trying to break down and explain to her what it means what the origin of it is. And like, you know, the first time I realized uh, I had ever heard the phrase was probably on the album, The Chronic in 1992, <laughs> although it may have been around before then. And then, we, you know, it means this and people use it this way. And we sort of, and then we have this whole international crowd around us and we're trying to explain to them what these nuts means and what context would you use it and why is it hilarious? No matter how many times you use it, it's always just as hilarious. It's always hilarious, especially when it's unexpected. But then it's just trying to explain what it means, right? Especially to somebody who doesn't understand it. Like, how do you say... Yeah. Well, these nuts refers to, you know, a gentleman's ball sack area. Um, and it's just a joke that we Americans have made out of it. It's not yeah. mature at all. And it's just something we do. <laughs> that is amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you about one more thing before we move into the lightning round. You and Carl are expecting, which I'm so excited about. And I want to ask you as a final question, if you can talk a little bit about plant-based nutrition, why it's so important and how you've incorporated that into your pregnancy, but also how you're going to raise your kid and what types of nutritional tips you have for parents and what they should be paying attention to when raising kids. Yeah. So, so interestingly, you know, on my journey, I think I told you earlier that I originally went vegan for the animals. And then I found out about the environmentalism aspect. And then as time went on, I started seeing the health effects of being vegan and just kind of changing my diet. And so, you know, they say that like there are three main reasons to go vegan or plant-based and it's, it's usually one, the animals, two, the environment and three for health reasons. And so it finally kind of like got to that place where like I was vegan for all three of those reasons. I got really into the nutritional aspect of it because right, you can be vegan and not be healthy at all because that was me. Like my husband did all the cooking. I didn't really know how to cook. I grew up in a household where my dad did all the cooking. So I just kind of grew up thinking that men were supposed to be doing the cooking and we just eat. So it wasn't (laughs) until I went vegan and he was like, I don't know what to feed you. You're going to have to learn how to cook on your own because I don't feel comfortable giving you broccoli for dinner every day. You know, he didn't know anything about it. So he he stopped cooking for me and I was like, crap, I got to learn how to cook. So at first I was just doing like tofurkey sandwiches and like fake bacon 
bacon and like just like all these like vegan like meat replacements and all this processed food, which like I said, there's a way to be vegan and not be healthy. And I think some you know people when they first go vegan, that's what happens because they don't know how to change their diet into like a whole foods plant-based vegan diet. Um, and instead they just like look for things that don't have animal products and don't have dairy ingredients because it's vegan. And sometimes those things are, are processed and they're not necessarily healthy, or especially if you eat too much of it every day. And so that's all I was doing every day. I was just eating like tofurkey sandwiches and pasta and like whatever I could find that didn't have meat in it. <laughs> And so eventually I was like, okay, I really got to learn how to cook because I can't eat tofurkey sandwiches every day. Like this isn't sustainable for me. And so I started noticing how when you go vegan and you're kind of forced to start eating foods and trying new foods that you, you've never tried before, I realized that there were just so many interesting new foods that I had never really thought to eat before. And I started getting a lot more creative with my cooking. And I signed up for like this plant-based delivery service. At first it was uh, Green Chef. I tried Green Chef which was a uh, meal kit delivery service. It's like they send you the ingredients and the recipes and you just cook them. And all the ingredients they were sending me were just so interesting. And so it really opened my eyes and my palate to a whole new range of foods. And it was all healthy foods, vegetables and fruits um, and grains. And, you know, I was eating lentils and it wasn't just like tofu every day. I think people think that like when you, you go vegan, you're just eating like a bunch of tofu all the time. But no, like most of the stuff that I was eating, it was just plant-based, but it was very hearty, very filling and very healthy. And I started noticing that my health was like just really transforming, you know, it's like all those greens, all those vegetables, all that really healthy food and, and just having a really nice balanced variety of foods in my diet, it was really um, affecting my health in a really positive way. My, my skin cleared. I had all this energy. I felt the best I, I ever felt, you know, and I, I said, okay, there's something to this. And so I started looking into plant-based nutrition and that's when I started really realizing all the healthy benefits and side effects that come along with not just being vegan, but a, a whole foods plant-based vegan. And when I say whole foods plant-based vegan, I mean like not a vegan that just eats a bunch of like vegan junk food because you can be a junk food vegan, but like a vegan who really does embrace like the plant-based aspect of being vegan. And so once I started noticing all these like wonderful health effects, I decided to start kind of studying plant-based nutrition. And this year I actually applied for a scholarship from a company organization that is like really pushing for plant-based education. And I got the scholarship and I was really excited. So I got the scholarship and I took the, the programs through Cornell University and I learned so much. And I, I decided that I really, really wanted to go hard with trying to educate my community and my audience about the benefits of learning about nutrition and incorporating plant-based meals into their diet. Like even if you're not vegan, right? Because not everybody who follows me is vegan, especially since I started out as a travel influencer. I still have like a lot of people who follow me because they fell in love with my travel and they're not necessarily vegan. But I get so many messages from people who still eat meat, but they're just so fascinated by like the meals that I cook and the plant-based dishes that I introduce them to in my stories, because I think it kind of breaks whatever stereotypes that they had about vegans and vegan eating. And it makes them really curious about 
what I do, how I live and, and how I make this diet sustainable for me. And so when I got pregnant, I noticed like right away that I was not having a very difficult pregnancy. Like I always thought that being pregnant was going to be like this really, really hard time. I, you know, kind of like looked at <laughs> how pregnancy was portrayed in media growing up in television and in movies. And it just always looked like such a miserable experience, but I haven't had any side effects since going pregnant. And I honestly am really interested in seeing those links between my diet and like what I eat and the kind of pregnancy experience that I'm having. And even especially like taking the program that I took to get a certificate in plant-based nutrition, I learned a lot about just how much food in our diet plays a role in our health. And I learned quite a bit. It affects everything. It affects our entire life. And it starts at a young age, you know, like by 10 years old, 100% of kids who are on a standard American diet, which is a diet that's just like dairy, meat, just like a lot of processed foods. They found that 100% of kids that who follow a standard American diet, they have fatty streaks already by 10 years old. And by your early twenties, 77% of those kids had fully formed plaques and some with vessels up to 90% occluded. By your 30s and 40s, those plaques progress. And by the time you're in your 50s and 60s, you're starting to see outward symptoms of heart disease. And so most of us, especially by our 50s and 60s, we're not correlating our health and you know the, the side effects and the symptoms that we're experiencing with what we had when we were kids. We're not thinking that the way we ate growing up had anything to do with the state of our health at the age that we are now, like even in our, in our thirties, we're not thinking that, you know, some people start experiencing food related illnesses in their thirties and their forties, and they're not correlating it to food. And, you know, I've even talked to doctors and I ask them why they don't talk about food with their, their patients. And they're like, well, we do, but most people just don't want to hear it because most people don't want to make that kind of lifestyle change. A lot of people don't want to hear that what they eat could be killing them or could be leading them to, you know, health problems or having a much more difficult life than there needs to be. So I kind of have developed this, this passion for now, like really wanting to incorporate my pregnancy journey and my journey of raising a child on a plant-based diet into my brand, because I want to start inspiring families to start educating their kids about nutrition, because it's not something that we really learn about growing up. You think about it as a kid, like we just eat whatever our parents give us. And we don't have a choice. It's whatever food they put on the table. That's what we eat. We don't grow up learning about nutrition and what we're putting in our bodies, we're just eating what we're told to eat. So I really want to educate people on how to have, you know, how to incorporate plant-based nutritional dishes um, into their children's lives at an early age. And I know how it can be when you're a parent, right? Like it can be really hard to cook really good meals. And sometimes it's just easier to pick up fast food. Like I grew up on McDonald's, like we love going to McDonald's, right? But you know, I think if we can really start getting parents to see the importance of nutrition and eating well at a young age and how it can really affect their kids later on in life, then I think more people would pay more attention to it.
And so, I, of course, I got backlash when I first announced that I was pregnant and I was like, yeah, I'm really excited to have like a vegan kid and got some nasty DMs from people who just had absolutely no knowledge of plant-based diets. And, you know, I had to kind of school them and say, hey, this is my background. Like I literally just got a certificate in this. Like I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm doing. And with anything, and especially with dieting and food, there's a wrong way to do something and there's a right way to do something. And so with plant-based nutrition and children, you just have to understand how to do it correctly. But a vegan diet can 100% meet the nutritional needs of children if you do it right. But you have to know what you're doing. You have to understand nutrition, which is why I'm so harping on this need to learn about nutrition. Everybody needs to learn about nutrition because it's just so important with making sure that you're getting all the, the nutrients and, and whatnot that you need in order to, to live your best life. So I, I started learning about how to do it with children because obviously their needs are going to be different from ours as adults. And so what I learned is that basically it's, it's really just an age thing. What your kid needs at a month, six months of, of age is going to be different from what they need at two years old. It's going to be different from what they need at six years old, different from what they need at 12 years old. And so you really just adjust according to their age. So like, for example, when a baby is an infant, you're not going to be feeding them solid foods that they can't handle, you know, you're going to want to feed them soft foods. So, you know, you kind of give them like more mashed foods or more liquidy foods, like things that they can actually handle. And so like in order for them to say, get their protein, right? Like that's a big thing for people. Like how do you give a kid like the protein that they need? Well, there's, there's tons of options, right? There's tons of options, but I think you just have to understand what those options are. Peas, beans, lentils, tofu, um, coconut yogurt, nut butter, seed butters. Those are all things that you can mash up to make them smooth or make them mashed so that a child can digest it. So it's really just understanding the different sources of protein and the different sources of whatever nutrition that they need and figuring out how to make it palatable and digestible for a child. That's all it is. But a lot of people don't want to do that research and they want to do what's just kind of easy and natural for them based on how they grew up. And it was like I said earlier, like this all kind of comes full circle to what I was saying earlier about how when you become an adult and you start learning new things, you start realizing that you have to do a lot of unlearning and a lot of unconditioning. And that's really what plant-based nutrition is about. It's unlearning and unconditioning yourself from kind of the bad habits that we picked up on when we were kids and wasn't necessarily our fault. We are just literally doing what we were taught to from our parents who were taught from their parents and and their parents, right? But now that we're adults and we can do our own research and we can do the work to figure out how to live better lives, how to be healthier and how to break that cycle, if you know that there's a better option, you should absolutely start doing the research to figure that out. And so that's what I did. I studied plant-based nutrition so that I can make sure that I'm living my best, healthiest life and that I can teach my children to do the same. So Ashley, are you allowed to add hot sauce 
to this plant-based food. <laughs> they will not be having any hot sauce of any kind. <laughs> nope, not until they're older and they can make for themselves. <laughs> I was enough. traumatized as a child when I tried hot sauce for the first time. Fair enough. All right, Ashley, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? I hope so. I'm a little scared, but let's do it. Oh, that's right. I I don't have the fear gene. I am fearless. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly influenced you over the years you'd most recommend people check out? It's actually one of the books that inspired me to go to Egypt. So I would say that this is like the oldest book that has influenced me for the longest. And it was The Alchemist, which I'm sure like so many, especially if you have a lot of, a lot of travelers who listen to this, they probably all read it. But if you haven't, The Alchemist is such a good book. And it took place in Egypt and it really got me interested in going there. Who is one person that is currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with just you and that person for an extended dinner and conversation? So the first person that comes to mind is also a person that I don't know if I'd want to have dinner with, but I'm going to say it anyway. That's Greta Thunberg. I'm a huge fan of her advocacy and climate action, but at the same time, she just comes off <laughs> as hating life. So I don't know how interesting the conversation would be over dinner. But I think that's also what would be really interesting about it is trying to like or putting like this me, a really bubbly person with somebody who literally like displays no emotion at all at a dinner table and seeing what kind of conversation can come out of it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What are your top three favorite travel destinations you've ever been to that you would most recommend people check out? Well, of course, Egypt. I always got to recommend Egypt. India, duh, right? I'm half Indian. And that was probably the most recent travel experience I had that was my favorite. And it actually moved to the top of my list above Egypt. So definitely go to India. And third best travel experience I had was St. Lucia. And I went there to participate in Carnival which was the wildest experience I've ever had. And so I definitely recommend going there. Like if you're looking for a festival to participate in, Carnival is just really, really amazing. It's it's an unmatched experience. So if you can do it in St. Lucia, it's one of the most beautiful Caribbean countries I've ever been to um, simply for the geographic makeup of St. Lucia, you know, with their pitons and just how lush it is. It's not flat. It's not a flat island. There's just so much to it. Um, to take in when you travel there. So definitely go to St. Lucia if you can. Yeah, it is really beautiful there. And I love the pics of India and Egypt as well, because those are also two really big countries. I mean, India is enormous. Egypt (laughs) is also a very big country. And there's just so many different places within those countries that you can go to have really really different experiences for sure like completely different experiences and i think that's like the cool thing about kerala right like it's so different from what people expect india to be you know especially if you're just kind of thinking india is this place where you go to to experience chaos and urban life i'm like no like there's this whole tropical side to india you know, go to Kerala and it's going to be a completely like polar opposite experience from like, say, traveling through Delhi. Totally agreed. I recommend that everybody goes to Kerala, especially if you've already done Delhi or you've already done Mumbai. And then you go to Kerala 
And, you know, Kerala has the highest literacy rate of any place in India. It has the lowest poverty rate. Mm -hmm. It is the cleanest state in India. The socially progressive things that are going on in Kerala are just, I mean, it's like, it's really remarkable to see that and then how different, you know, different places are. And then you've got the backwaters and everything there, which is just a totally different vibe than the urban intensity of of certain places. But then you go up north and I, I was in Punjab in Amritsar for Diwali in 2017, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. which was amazing. I mean, you know, like the Punjabis are just, I mean, incredible. I mean, that's like the party center of, <laughs> of, of India. I mean, that's where Bhangra music comes from. I mean, that's just like, that's incredible. So there's so many very different types of experiences you can have there. And same thing with Egypt. Did you get down to the very south? In, did you go to Aswan? Aswan. Did you hang out with the, with the Nubians? Yes. And, and that was like such a cool moment for me seeing the African cultural side to Egypt, right? Especially in movies, you don't really see dark Egyptians or African, you know, Afro-Egyptians portrayed in, in media. And so to actually go and see the Nubian population, it made me really proud to see like that part of Egypt that was still like retaining and embracing its like African roots. So that was a really cool experience for me. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's really important for people to see. I mean, one, because Aswan, just like we described with Kerala, same thing with Aswan, you know, like Aswan is just so fundamentally different from from Cairo or any of these places. It's just it's laid back. They have botanical gardens as islands in the middle of the river and people are swimming in it. And you would just never see something like that in Cairo. And so it's amazing. And then, as you said, yeah, the history of the kingdom of Kush and the Nubian people, which, you know, Nubia is part of it is in southern Egypt and part of it is in Northern Sudan. Um, and they have their entire history there that you go and you stay with them and you learn about it and, you know, all of that. I mean, it's really, really a powerful and important experience. And I think the Nubians are perhaps the sweetest and kindest humans perhaps that I have ever met, yeah. certainly right up at the top. I mean, they're amazing. Yeah, I definitely think people should include that on their list because it's something you have to make time for, like when you're in Aswan to go see, because it's very easy to miss that part, right? Especially if you have like a, a cruise schedule. So you want to make sure you make time to like spend like an extra day or two there to be able to do, you know, some exploration, some exploring of Aswan, such as going to the Nubian village to visit it. Definitely. All right. Ashley, what are your top three bucket list destinations, places that you've never been, highest on your list you'd most love to see? So I would really like to to visit Myanmar because I feel like maybe it would be a very kind of, not necessarily off the beaten path destination, but just a more unexplored country for a traveler to visit. And so, uh, yeah, that's actually one of my, my top bucket list destinations is going to Myanmar. And even though I've already been to Jamaica, because I of my Jamaican heritage, I would like to go back because when I went there the first time, it was for a wedding. So I didn't really get to experience it in a way that could pay homage to my roots, right? So one thing that I've always kind of wanted to explore was Rastafarian culture, because I'm curious if maybe I have Rastafarian 
heritage in any way. I don't know because like I said, my dad doesn't really talk about our Jamaican side very much to me. So there's not a lot that I know about my roots and it would be really interesting to see if there are any links between myself and Rastafarians, especially because they are pretty much vegan. Like they are very much in touch with nature and I I have a very strong connection with nature. So I would kind of like to go back to Jamaica and kind of explore it a lot more deeply. And of course, Nigeria. I want to go to Nigeria and experience my husband's country. I I really hope he comes around to it one day uh, because I would really love to explore Nigeria. That's awesome. All right. The final question, Ashley, I'm going to ask you to name your top five hip hop MCs of all time. But before you do that, I want to just ask you what hip hop means to you. What do you love about hip hop? I love that it's something that started with us. Um, It's just like, it's just a really deep part of our culture. (laughs) And believe it or not, even though it's something that like we own and it's something that is a really big part of like our history, like Black American history, I really kind of am fascinated about how it's been embraced by so many cultures around the world. I can't tell you how many countries I've been to where hip hop was kind of seen as like this really big deal in like the different cultures that I visit, like Japan of all places. I remember going to, I think it was Kyoto and seeing like just like little aspects of hip hop everywhere that I went. I was like, they, they like hip hop here. So it was, it's really interesting to see how other cultures have kind of like taken hip hop and embraced it into something of their own and turned it into something that is culturally relevant for them. But for me, it will always be something that kind of like started with my community and something that we can fully embrace and say that this is our history. That is awesome. And I totally agree. When I travel around the world, I look for the hip hop culture in the different places and and, and exactly what you just described, because I agree. I think it is really amazing to see that. And I was a hip hop DJ back in the 90s. I was a hip hop DJ from 1991 to 1999. So I got very lucky with that golden era there when I was in high school and college and came up on that. So I am super excited and curious to hear. Now, have you announced, by the way, do the followers of Ashley Renee, all of your readers and Instagram followers, do they know who your top five hip hop MCs are, or is this going to be like breaking news? We're going to announce it to the world here on the Maverick show. Breaking news. I've never talked about my favorite hip hop artists. Then this is, we got to like do like a press release or something, uh, you know, to alert all of the Ashley Renee fans that this is breaking news today for the first time ever. You are going to announce on the Maverick show, your top five hip hop MCs of all time. Go ahead. Top five. Okay. So the first one might surprise people, but I love, 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 love Lupe Fiasco. It's kind of an unconventional choice because he's not like a mainstream hip-hop artist. Uh, I think he tried to break into the mainstream at one point, but I think his loyal fans will always forever love his more underground style. So he's my favorite hip-hop artist of all time. 
and then Common. I love Common. And I want to say it's really just because his voice is so fucking soothing. Like I used to say, I would love to just have him read me bed stories at night just to put me to sleep because his, his voice is just like the most awesome <laughs> I've ever heard. Most deaf, of course. Uh, Lauren Hill got to represent for the females, you know, the women rappers, because I don't feel like they ever get the amount of love they should, especially because hip hop has just become heavily associated with male and it's just so heavily male dominated, but we, we got to give a shout out to Lauren Hill because she's amazing. And because I'm from Atlanta, like outcast, of course, <laughs> come on. I was curious about that because you are from Atlanta and uh, you started off with the uh, Midwest Chicago <laughs> theme and then you went to the New York, New Jersey. And I was like, is she going to represent for the Dirty South here at all in this list? I mean, not that you need to by any means. It's your list. But I was I'm always very curious because I feel like a lot of times the age demographic and the regional demographic influences people's picks. So. Yeah. But sometimes it doesn't. Like, sometimes it doesn't. So that's amazing, though. But those are five really fantastic picks. That is awesome. My parents are from Chicago. Oh, they are. My oh. mom's not from Chicago. Obviously, she's from India. But when they right. met, when she came to America, Chicago was where she moved to. And that's where she met my dad. So my dad's from Southside Chicago. So there is nice. that Midwest element there. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So it's in the history. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Ashley, I want all of my listeners to come find you, come follow you. I think you're amazing. I think you're up to amazing stuff and putting out amazing content. So where can people find out more about you and how do you want them to come into your universe? Thank you so much for allowing me to share that with people. So I am Hey Ashley Renee everywhere. And just so you know, Renee is spelled R-E-N-N-E. It is always misspelled. It's been misspelled in print magazines, <laughs> but it is Hey, H-E-Y, Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, Renee, R-E-N-N-E on Instagram, the YouTubes, the Twitters, but I'm most active on YouTube and Instagram because I'm just a very highly visual person. And so on YouTube, I like to put out videos about smart technology, electric cars, plant-based nutrition, all that stuff. And on Instagram, same thing. Amazing. We are going to put all of those links in the show notes. So folks, you can just go to one place at the maverickshow.com and go to the show notes for this episode. And there we're going to link to all of Ashley's social handles, her YouTube channel, her amazing blog, and all of that. So you can just go to one place, find it all there at the maverickshow.com. Ashley, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a blast talking to you. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. 
If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.